<laughs> You're not coming through real clear. Oh, um, am I? I sound soft, or am I echoing, or what? It sounds like you're coming through kind of a cricket mouth. Hmm. <laughs> I'll get my experts to work on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do you think that is, Mitch? Uh, there's an okay. adjustment being made okay. here, so okay. is that better? it's better now. Um, do I sound more normal? Yeah. Okay. Do I sound completely normal? No, you're you're now you're kind of now you're a little bit muffled. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only thing that's predictable about technology is that something will go wrong, and yeah. I'm I'm amazed at the variety of things that can go wrong. Yeah. It's always well, something it's, new. <laughs> yeah, I've never well, heard this one before. <laughs> I guess one question is: Am I coming through well? Yeah, you sound great. You're coming okay. through loud and clear. That's good. I think. Well, my, I can understand you well. All right. Well, so. m- my engineer is. On getting on the phone with yours, so maybe they can okay. figure it out. Sure. Um, do you have any questions, maybe, before we get no, this? No, I, I really don't. I've listened to a to a large number of your CDs. Oh, good. And uh, I I listened to the one by uh, Wangara Matai yeah, yeah. and uh, Rich Sizek. Oh, and, you listened uh, to that. Good. And the two on uh, Albert Einstein. Right. <laughs> uh, it was fun. Oh, good. I, I enjoyed it immensely. Oh, good. We had a huge response to this Isaac show. Oh, Just, You can imagine because people haven't heard uh, an evangelical talk that way. Yeah, you know, that's right. And it's it was amazing. Great. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, Mitch, uh, am I still sounding muffled? You... It's much better now. Hmm. Yeah. All you're right. you're fine. But, I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna work well. Okay. All right. If you think we're all right, then um, yes, yeah, it's it sounds good now. Okay, Mitch. Do we need to get levels for him, or are we fine? Okay. I think we can just start talking. Uh, you know, just up front. Um, this is not live. We get to edit this, which means we have the luxury sure. of having a real conversation. It doesn't have to be nah. especially linear if it doesn't turn out that way. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so let's just plunge in. I I think you. I think you, if you've if you've listened to the CDs, you pr- you probably have a sense of what we do, and and every do. every program mm-hmm. is different. I'm really trying to get at the heart of what you have to say, and mm-hmm. um, and sure. and I'd like to start, and I, I usually start in this place, whatever my subject is, with just um, if you just tell me a little bit about the religious background of your of your life, your childhood, what you grew up in. Yes, uh, I I grew up in a home which uh, was. Uh, let me start again. <laughs> okay. <coughs> I uh, made a mistake of running over here, and uh, <laughs> all right, we'll catch your breath. All I'm. Right. Uh, I have caught my breath, but I guess I've got a little. Okay. Do you have some water? Yeah, Good. I have some water yeah. here. Um, I was raised in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, in um, in a home that uh, took seriously both science and the Bible, which uh, later on I realized was quite unusual. Mm-hmm. But uh, my upbringing was one that encouraged me to develop my interests in science, also in art and music and politics, and also uh, a very careful study of the Bible and its teachings. And all of these things were held together in a in a single fabric. And it's because of that uh, uniting of those things right from my early childhood that I not only went into science, but I also uh, held very strongly to 
my Christian faith, uh, which is a faith that takes the Bible seriously, that uh, takes theology seriously, but also takes the world very seriously and, and attempts to find one's place in it so that the life is lived as vocation. Um, Mitch, are you worried about that? We just had a funny glitch in your voice. It, uh, yeah, <clears throat> I, I think we'll... Um, you want to say that again? Just a life lived as vocation. I think we it, you faded out for a minute. Oh, life lived as vocation. Okay, sorry. And... Um, <laughs> You studied. Did you study science as an undergraduate, also? Yes, I yes I did. Mm-hmm. Um, my my interest in science began at about the age three with a turtle that I had in my backyard, which gradually was added to, and I had a backyard zoo throughout my childhood and okay. youth. Hang on a second. We've got we've got a funny thing going on with the. Okay. You're not hearing it, are you? Uh, your, no. Your voice is. I can't explain it. It's it's like crickety a gl- too. Uh, hmm? <laughs> crickety too. Oh yeah, it's you. It, you it's, <coughs> it's clipped off. You like suddenly part oh, of a clipped. word. Yeah. Well, even oh. in the middle of a word, part of a word mm. will go away. So Mitch is on the mm. phone again. I'm sorry. I apologize. Oh, that's fine. I don't want to talk about anything uh, substantive. Um, I I will tell you though that I've been I, I've known about you for I don't know. Years and so <laughs> oh, I just good. I've had you on my list. Oh, that's that's great to hear. <laughs> and, I, and so I'm I'm just I'm really glad we've finally gotten around to this. Well, interview. it's fun to be part of this this program. I I was so impressed uh, by the way you handled things. Uh, it, uh, very very informative, and uh, you get very you get the best out of the people you're interviewing. I think and. Uh, Anyway, it was just it was just wonderful to listen to those CDs. Good. Well, and I I mean I'm I'm committed to um you know to taking religion seriously and also taking mm-hmm. seriously its intellectual content as well as yeah. spiritual yeah. content and both of those things tend to get lost in when religion enters our debates well, as you know. That's for sure. That's for sure. I want to get into Genesis. That's good. Okay. Um um, tell me what you. I think we can. I think we can start up again tentatively. Tell me what you. What your focus. Your scientific focus was in your studies um, as an undergraduate, and then as you as you progressed. Yes, as an undergraduate, I majored in biology, and uh, even uh, even during my first year uh, there, I was doing research. In fact, uh, Calvin College. Uh, gave me a small laboratory to for my own use where I pursued some of my research interests, which I had developed earlier in high school. Hmm. And uh, that was on uh, the uh, development of feathers and feather follicles and parakeets, which was one of the things I was <laughs> studying. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but uh, I was... Uh, I was a bird surgeon as a as a youth and uh, into my late teens, uh, with approval of the state veterinary board because no one else in the state was doing bird surgery <laughs> in uh, Michigan. The state yeah, of Michigan? in Michigan, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so I uh, it was it was quite a privilege. I I just could not charge for my work, but I could uh, accept donations. Mm. So. Uh, but I, I went through my undergraduate years at Calvin in biology with a minor in chemistry, 
and then went uh, to uh, work on my master's degree in biology at the University of Michigan, came back to teach one year at Calvin College, uh, and then went back for my Ph.D., uh, which I did in the area of zoology, and uh, my focus was on environmental physiology. Hmm. My research was on the desert iguana of Southern California, hmm. and uh, I worked out its physiology, behavior, and response to microclimates. So I began as a kind of desert biologist and environmental physiologist, hmm. uh, at least uh for my PhD work. Okay. Well, I still hear that <clears throat> happening with the sound, and I'm. Mitch mm. has left the room, but I don't. I don't want to keep going until we get this resolved. Sure. So. Sure. Oh. <laughs> I think I hear them coming. Well, down. it certainly is. Certainly is giving giving my body a time to <clears throat> get back to uh, normal heart rate and. Yeah. I was feeling so invigorated. Uh, I didn't run because I was late. I just felt so spunky. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> to be out. The day is clear and it's sunny. And I just left my coffee hour with my students and mm. had a fine lecture period. And it's just been a beautiful day. <laughs> it's a little bit too warm for mid-November in Wisconsin and Minnesota, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think it is. It makes I think me a little is, nervous, but, I, I have to say. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, these 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 days have happened before, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to attribute immediately mm-hmm. to climate change. But <laughs> uh, but our winters have been much less severe here yeah. over the last uh, few decades, uh, two decades, certainly. Mm-hmm. How, Mitch, what do you think? <clears throat> Mm-hmm. It did happen once a minute ago when we were talking, before you came back in. Mm-hmm. Really? Okay. All right. So what we're saying is um, we should keep trying for a few minutes. If it keeps happening, we may actually have to, Mitch said we may have to reschedule. There's no place else sure. for us to go, which I would sure. hate, but um, we want to get this right. So Well... It's very convenient for right. me to come to this studio. So okay. It's... Well, it sounds okay now, so let's keep going and see what happens. Um, all right, let's all just plunge in here. When I heard, um, I was listening to a, a talk you gave at the McLaren Center. I got yes. the, the CD of that. Mm-hmm. And it really struck me that you, your, um, that you, your approach to being both a scientist and a person of faith was very, is very much akin to that of the classic scientists. You were reminding me <laughs> of that quote of Francis Bacon opposite the title page of Darwin's Origin of Species, where mm-hmm. he, t- he spoke of two books. Um, yes, the books right. of the the work the Word of God and the works of God. And I heard you talking about two books. Um, yes, and that that's you are right. once reading the Bible and you're reading the natural world. And <laughs> do, do, is that, um, or, or do you consciously follow in that lineage? Or yeah, you... I consciously follow in that lineage. And uh, it really is the lineage that gives me the uh, strength to be a good scientist. Mm-hmm. And it really gave me the incentive to go into science. The, uh, the thing about my growing up was in the back of our songbook, there was the uh, confession of faith uh, of the year uh, 
1651, um, <laughs> which uh, uh, says in Article 2, uh, under the heading, By What Means Is God Made Known to Us?, uh, the answer being uh, God makes himself known to us by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and governance of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book Mm. in which every creature is as a letter of text leading us to know God's divinity and everlasting power. And second, he makes us more fully known uh, through his holy and divine word, which is sufficient for our salvation. And what I do is I read both books coherently within themselves, and then I work for a coherent reading between the two books as well. Hmm. And uh, that makes, I think, for a much better science uh, uh, than if you just study the book of nature or the book of God's works. So another way of saying it is there are two books, the book of God's word and the book of God's works. And uh, what I do is uh, work on a coherent reading of both and both of them together. Mm. What, what, was, what, what prayer book was that? Was that a Calvinist? Um? Yes, uh, it's uh, the Belgic Confession. Hmm. Uh, I think I said the year 1651. It might be the year 1561. Okay. <laughs> I'll have to check that okay. out. Um, <clears throat> okay. This, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, and so, and so I, I wonder, um, and we can also check that out. I wonder when, when did you first start to read the book of nature in a way that began to worry you about the human effect on the natural world and 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 possibly about dissonance between <laughs> between those books were there well, turning this, points for you yeah very very definitely um the major turning point for me was on my desert study study site uh in southern california which, in Southern California. And when was at, that? This is in the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, toward the end of the summer, uh, Ruth and I, my wife and I, spent on the desert. Uh, a water truck uh, came on to the site, oh, maybe 300 feet from us, sprinkled the desert surface. It was open desert. And uh, later laid a concrete slab and built... Uh, build a house there, and what I discovered was that that was the start of the building of Palm Desert, California. (laughs) This, uh, my study site now is an approach pad to a drive-in bank, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's even a place uh, along the roadside, when I visited it recently, that has cattails growing in a ditch that has water in it. When I was there, the rainfall was 2.54 inches per year, and uh, water was extremely scarce. Uh, the thing that I was doing was to try to figure out how these lizards managed to live there. And what is also interesting is that this development of Palm Desert was built on the alluvial fan of, uh, of Deep Canyon, 
And that uh, alluvial fan is is a river delta of a river that flows only once in 100 years or so. Hmm. But it afforded a great view of the desert, and so that's where the city was built. And, you know, I should, should say I was, drove through Palm Desert, California, just last year, and it's, mm. I don't know, it's like a, just we should say this for people who might be listening who haven't been there, it, it's it's like a suburb of any city, isn't it? I mean, it's it is, full yes. of streets and shopping areas, quite fancy it shopping is. areas, restaurants yeah. and and homes and golf courses. Yeah. And the lizard I studied is now found only in the Palm Desert Zoo, hmm. uh, which is interesting. It it uh, <clears throat> it uh, managed to live without any free water. It got all of its water from eating rather dry vegetation, and it survived uh, a, an environment in which the surface temperature each day in July and August reached about 170 degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. And uh, so I was <clears throat> amazed by this animal and uh, worked to try to figure out how it was surviving in such a severe climate and habitat. And then you saw um, human beings coming in and, I mean, not just surviving, but turning it into yeah. something and other there was than no, desert, right? That's right. And there was no water there. So um, they had to figure that out. But also near my study site in the area of uh, near near Palm Springs, there was a um, a wonderful system of dunes. And uh, while I was there, um, machines came in, leveled off the dunes, and they put streets uh, through this area that had been dunes and built houses. And on one occasion, I went there to see what was happening, and one of the houses, a long ranch house, had cracked in two because the wind had whipped the sand out of uh, out from one end of it, mm. and it was just hanging into this hole. Mm. And I read in the newspapers that uh, residents there were angry because Riverside County did not plow the streets frequently enough to remove the sand that continually kept blowing in. Right. Uh, this uh, development was featured in Life magazine at the time as a great example of reclaiming the desert. Mm. It, to me, uh, showed a tremendous amount of foolishness on uh, our part as human beings for trying to uh, convert what was already a very beautiful system into one that was really not sustainable. Right. And there is um, quite a compelling argument to make that Christianity, uh, or what what used to be called Judeo-Christian culture, which really formed American culture, Western culture, um, <clears throat> is in part to blame for this kind of attitude. Um, and I, as I was reading about you and your work and related work, I, I read about this I guess quite famous 1967 paper by a medieval yes. historian, Lynn White Jr. <clears throat> Apparently, this is the most widely reprinted article ever published in Science Magazine. It is, yes. <laughs> called the historical roots of our ecologic crisis, um, and I, I understand that that article. And again, this is 1967. This is before um, environmentalism as a word had been coined or as a lifestyle. Yes, so, that's right. But I understand that 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 article in 1967 influenced you. I mean, talk to me about that. What he said. And well, what... uh, it it did influence me as it did many people. I had been working in this area 
well before that article. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was I was working here as as a as a youth in the forties and in the fifties as well. And um, the thing that struck me about the article was how he was focusing on one verse in the scriptures, which was Genesis one twenty eight. Uh, and not looking at the rest of the scriptures, because even at that time, I saw the Bible as a kind of ecological handbook for how rightly to live on earth. And this was escaping his attention because of a focus on this one verse. But I think that what um, he was saying, I mean, and, and, and what one can see is that is that, that verse in Genesis, which is where... Um, God, uh, let's. I've just got this in front of me. You know, t- says to Adam and Eve, "Be fruitful and multiply." And as it has been traditionally translated, fill the earth yes. and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing right. that moves upon the earth. That that, in fact, and I've heard this from many Christians. I've heard it from Africans, you know, who grew up with mm-hmm. being taught by Christians that this was an interpretation of how human beings were to act in the world and. Uh, and the the, the, well, the focus was on that verse. Well, this this verse is it is called the cultural mandate mm-hmm. uh, in some some theologies, and uh, it has been used that way. But when you look at the first chapter of Genesis, um, there is a problem that that chapter is attempting to address, which goes well beyond Lynn White's analysis. Uh, the moon, for example, in that very same chapter is referred to as the lesser light, the sun as the greater light. And the point of this chapter is that all of these, uh, all these objects, animals, plants, stars, uh, sun, and so forth, are creatures and not gods. Right. So if we were to use the Hebrew word for uh, the lesser light, uh, that would be the moon, and that would be to use the word of God, of a God, and similarly for the sun. And so the the function of this first chapter in one in in one respect is to show that all these things are creatures and that there is only one God. Uh, then uh, chapter two uh, uh, moderates that. Uh, kabash word, which is found uh, in uh, in rule and subdue in the first chapter, uh, and when we get to Genesis two fifteen, for example, Adam is expected to serve the garden. The Hebrew word there is avad, okay, and to keep it. So, uh, one of the rules of interpreting Scripture is to always interpret it in context rather than taking one verse out of context. It is true, though, as you're suggesting, that uh, some have taken that verse out of context and used it as uh, a warrant to subdue the earth. But even that is uh, flies in the face of, for example, uh, there's a proverb which says, uh, if uh, a prince destroys his subjects, he makes a fool of himself because a prince without subjects no longer is a prince. Hmm. So uh, the interpretation of dominion then is is it has to be something like stewardship, and in the so, New Testament mm-hmm. you would translate the, te- the word dominion as stewardship in context. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, in in the New Testament, um, 
Jesus Christ is given all dominion, and it's interesting to see also that he takes that dominion as service, um, counting dominion or counting equality with God, not a thing to be grasped. He takes the form of a servant. So uh, uh, the the idea of dominion uh, within the scriptures is uh, is service, and mm-hmm. it's it's out of that that we actually get our word of conservice or conservation. Uh, as the creation serves us, we must reciprocate and serve the creation. This is what we get out of Genesis 2.15. So the Dominion passage says, yes, you can subject all this. Uh, These are creatures. Uh, You're in charge. And then Genesis 2 says, but don't destroy them. Take care of them. I'm interested when you say that you've come to understand the Bible as an ecologic handbook. I'm I'm interested um, in some other phrases that you use, like um, you talk about Sabbath for the land being yes, a theme. Uh-huh. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's based uh, it's based on the biblical teaching on the Sabbath. Um, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, it's address it it addresses the Sabbath of the week. Remember the Sabbath. To Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work and so forth. In Exodus 23, there's the law that the land itself should keep a Sabbath rest and uh, be given a Sabbath rest. Then in Leviticus 25 and 26, there's the warning that if these laws are not obeyed, uh, then uh, the people will be driven off the land and the land will take its own Sabbaths, the Sabbaths it had not when they dwelled upon it. Mm. The idea is that nothing should be relentlessly pressed. Our own, our own bodies, our own uh, week, uh, our, the land. And the model for this, interesting, is uh, the creator of heaven and earth, who also uh, is described as resting. So the rest is not simply because you're weary. It's it's actually embedded into the fabric of creation and of human society in biblical terms. And also for the natural world itself. And for the natural world, yes. So really, you know, if you would broaden this, uh, the application of this teaching, Sabbath for the land, it means that our rivers should have their times of rest, uh, the prairies, the the lakes, the the rivers, the the streams, and so forth. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if um, you know. I, I I do think there's something to the fact that the way people read the Bible, the way Europeans uh, and and I guess American Christians read the Bible. Um affected the way they have treated um, the natural world and also nature in other parts of the world where dominion was, <laughs> you know, the dominion in that kind of traditional sense was um, being practiced. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, though, if if you think and how you think it can matter now to mm-hmm. to give a new interpretation of the Bible to people mm-hmm. in the 21st century world. Well, one thing to to recognize is if in in my state of Wisconsin, for example, if you would uh, move through the countryside today, uh, 
many of uh, the farms here uh, are really rather idealistic and, and idyllic. Um, because of biblical teaching, um, the Lutheran farmers here, uh, for example, uh, pride themselves not only in good cropland and neat farmhouses and barns, but are also proud of the wetland on their property, the the backwood lot. And uh, the, the reason why the farms here don't look like commercial enterprises uh, uh, is that they do have this long-standing stewardship ethic. Hmm. In a UCC community, I uh, visited to speak. It's uh, a United a Church year. of Christ. Yeah, United mm-hmm. Church of Christ, which was once evangelical and reformed. Um, I uh, I arrived uh, early in the afternoon, and the pastor, who was my host uh, for a meeting that was going to be a combined meeting of 13 congregations, um, drove me through the countryside and pointed out that there were tractors uh, working the land, but that this would not have happened uh, 30 years ago because they would be using horses and they could not be out. Uh, using their horses on the Sabbath, but mm. they had rationalized that uh, with tractors uh, they could be uh, buzzing along without doing physical work and maybe even <laughs> listening to hymns as they plowed. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, the point really is that um, the Bible already was being applied, and I know when my in my growing up. Uh, even though I grew up in Grand Rapids in an urban church, we always had a prayer t- time for the planting uh, in the spring and also for the harvest. And uh, if there was a crisis uh, of uh, rain uh, rain or drought, uh, there would be a special prayer service called for that. Uh, so the Bible was really very vital on the farm as well as in the city. And uh, a lot of the stewardship practices I practiced as a child came from uh, those interpretations of Scripture as being uh, a handbook for how to rightly live. So we recycled. Um, we, uh, uh, we took care of our gardens uh, with a great deal of uh, care. Um, I was taught to take care of my animals well. Uh, in my backyard zoo, and uh, we've learned much more since then because we've learned that some of these species now are in danger of extinction. And um, so our stewardship has broadened, but uh, we really did have a rich stewardship ethic uh, even then. And if you look at Amish farms, um, they uh, there are certainly violations there within their culture of some of these ecological principles, but by and large, they're quite sensitive to caring for the soil and caring for the earth. Uh, one of my Mennonite friends, a farmer up in northern Michigan, um, for example, when I entered his house uh, one afternoon, um, had a Bible and Mother Earth News on his coffee table. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's this about? He says, those are the, th- those are the two books I used to farm by. <laughs> and uh, he was serious about that. Yeah. And uh, his cows, uh, he provided uh, 
straw, which he cut from growing wheat, which is not a profitable crop there, but he raised the wheat because the cows preferred to lay on wheat straw. Mm-hmm. And uh, his major uh, aim was to have contented cows, and uh, <laughs> then they would give good milk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, a very, very loving approach to animals on the farm and to the land itself. He uh, left three inches of stubble when he cut the wheat so that uh, uh, drifting topsoil from his neighbor's farms would be trapped there and add to his soil. Uh, It was a very, very fascinating place to be. Talk to me about you, how you've lived these principles out. You live, you live on a wetland, correct? That you, I do. Tell me about that. I live on Wabisa wetlands, which is a very large marsh. And um, I'm the steward of of much of this area. Uh, And uh, my lawn has 70 different species of plants. It's a rich uh, and abundant uh, place for animal life. Uh, It looks just like anyone anyone else's lawn from a distance. But when you come up close, you'll find it's uh, multi-textured and uh, it's got just a vibrant life. I recall one year... um, uh, during migration, for example, that 3,000 robins descended on my lawn to eat earthworms because <laughs> I uh, am producing so many, not by trying, but because <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> how, how does it come to be so textured and various? Um, I do what I call ecological lawn mowing. Uh, when one species really gets the upper hand, uh, I'll just mow it uh, closer to the ground, or I might let it go up four or five inches and then cut it. Uh, When my lawn needs seeding, I let the grass grow to full height, let's say on a small patch, 10 by 10 feet, wait until it seeds and cut it. Mm. And that means that kind of for much of the summer then, it looks like you forgot to shave on one part of your (laughs) face. (laughs) But but it's ecological lawn mowing, and, and one of the things... To start this off uh, is you can look up the meaning of weed in a dictionary and you discover that uh, it's defined as a plant growing where you don't want it to grow. So I got rid of all my weeds just by looking out of them all and and saying, welcome. <laughs> uh, so no pesticides or besides are necessary. Mm-hmm. If you take that uh, view, but wait, uh, tell me what that means. Do they are they they are still there, right? Or, or oh not? yes, yeah. They, you you they welcome are. them, and oh, so they're not weeds. You don't define them. They're as not weeds, weeds by okay. <laughs> the, right. they are not weeds because a weed is something, weed is you, don't. something you don't want, mm-hmm. and if you want them, they're mm-hmm. automatically gone. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, I've I've been chairman of my own town, the town of Dunn, and uh, led it through a stewardship effort so that my whole community could join in this uh, great privilege of taking care of the land. And we have 34 and a half square miles of land pretty well secured for agriculture, for human dwellings, for wetland preservation, and then also for for prairie restoration. Uh, every two years, we have a biennial parade of prairies in our town, which is our counter to uh, annual parades of homes okay. uh, held in other communities. <laughs> uh, so we're trying to live wholesomely. And how long has this been of, going on? 
since uh, the mid-1970s, and uh, we've won a couple of national prizes, uh, Renew America Awards. The last one we got, we shared with the state of New Jersey. <laughs> and uh, uh, we're, uh, we're listed on uh, websites as an example of a sustainable community. A sustainable community, and does that necessarily mean... I don't know, less profitable, less, does it, does it, what, what do you sacrifice for? <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> we sacrifice congestion, uh, busyness, frantic behavior, uh, and uh, frequent trips to the mall. <laughs> uh, that's what we sacrifice. What we gain is peace, wholesomeness, less TV watching, uh, more hikes. Uh, more enjoyment uh, when the cranes return to the marsh in the spring, um, and less expenditure on recreation because the recreation is all about us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a very very beautiful thing. We we have uh, I think in the wider society we've been uh, we've been snared by uh, factors that would keep us from taking a quiet walk or sitting in simply beholding the beauty of the world. Uh, Jesus' teaching on behold the lilies of the field, behold the birds of the air is really well taken here. Mm. And uh, beholding is so much different than just checking off species on a, on a life list. Mm. Uh, learning uh, to appreciate every one of these creatures by really giving them time uh, actually feeds back and brings to you a more wholesome life, too. And as you well know, in our time, people are waking up to the environment largely because of what seems like an impending crisis. Um, yes. And when you started doing this, you and your community, your town in Wisconsin, 30 years ago, it sounds like, more than 30 years yes. ago, um you must have been seen as as kind as kind of radical, or um, how was that? How was it received then? And very definitely, we were really looked at as being really odd uh-huh. um, because there wasn't really any crisis. Although I think you could discover it if you worked to find it, but we we moved ahead on this because it was conceived by people in time to see. It as being the right thing to do, and uh, what we what we did is uh, we studied our town. We we did an inventory of all of the things that were present there: farms and marshes and springs and historic sites, Indian trails, uh, buildings, uh, our tobacco farms included, and. Uh, what happened after we did this very careful and very extensive inventory is we fell in love with the place. Uh, <laughs> we, we, most of us didn't know where we lived. Uh, we just moved in and out, uh, rather oblivious to the beauty of things. How, how many and people once, are we talking about here? I mean, then and uh, now. F- then uh, forty two hundred. Now it's fifty three hundred. Okay, sorry. Okay. And uh, uh, what happened was we discovered who we were. Uh, we discovered what we had been, who we are, and then that brought us to think in terms of what we would be. And uh, not many people think of that, but in our town, 
people began to think about it. In fact, what we did was we decided that the cemetery, which had not had burials in it since the late 1800s, should be expanded to allow for some of us to be buried there. Uh, we No one had been buried in our town uh, mm. for over 100 years because everyone was itinerant, and we were always going somewhere else. And uh, finally, we settled down. And uh, so we have lots and lots of people now who who really think of this as their place, their home, and also the home that will be uh, the home of their children and their grandchildren. It, is everyone, or most people, farmers? Or, or is this just about how they well, tend the land uh, around all, them? All of the, uh, all the agricultural land in the town is, is farmed by our farmers. But uh, you can't have... Only you have, yeah, you have to. <laughs> with thirty with thirty four and a half square miles, you can't have uh, fifty three hundred farmers. So mm-hmm. I mean, is the there farmers, a downtown? Is there? No, there's no downtown. Our downtown is the town hall, built in nineteen thirty two by a Norwegian shipbuilder, and it's surrounded by a, a intensive rotational grazing farm, uh, and uh, it's a place where there are Holstein, Holstein cows and uh, pasture lands and. Uh, a white town hall that looks uh, like a little church standing out uh, by itself in the country. Um, we have about 12 uh, uh, communities uh, scattered across the face of the town, each one with their own little park and uh, neighborhood organization. And uh, we do have town meetings where all of us get together. Uh, we've reinstated those, and we have also worked very hard to reinstate uh, democratic procedures where everyone can speak their piece at our meetings. Hmm. And do you have stores? Where do people go grocery shopping? No, or? we don't have any stores. We have a few. Uh, uh, it's mainly rural, and um, they'll go grocery shopping in the, in the wider region. Uh, but a lot of us grow our our own food in our own gardens, mm-hmm. and uh, we do have a farmer's market at the town hall. Yeah. Uh, which is run only for two hours once a week so that the farmers can spend their time on their farms. And uh, it's uh, so we do produce quite a bit of our food, and, uh, and increasingly we're uh, trying to establish community-supported agriculture farms. We have Hmong farmers, and, uh, and uh, those who farm for uh, flowers, flower production, and mm. prairie plant production as well. Mm. Oh, I'd like to ask you questions about that all day, but I think we <laughs> um, You have been, I, I think of you and, uh, as a bridge builder between um, environment and ecology, the science of that, and in fact, practices of that that have been going on for some decades, and evangelical Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I've learned from reading some of what you've written and spoken about is that, in fact, now, the, the, now this is there is suddenly again with this in this moment where our whole culture is waking up to ecological crisis. Mm-hmm. There is also a very um, strong new presence of evangelical voices in that. that That is new in the public eye, but, but what I'm reading in mm-hmm. you is that, in fact, this has been building for three decades. That's very interesting. That's, I mean, tell me this right. story. Well, 
for me and my life um, in the uh, in the late 1970s. Uh, the moral majority was emerging, and uh, and I had always had a uh, a deep belief in uh, in God as creator of heaven and earth, and also uh, also in uh, in redemption as it's it's taught in the Christian churches. But what I saw in the emerging moral majority and and other radio pastors and so was a much reduced reference to the creation uh, or to God as creator. In fact. Uh, in many broadcasts, there was no mention at all of God as creator of heaven and earth. In our church services as a child, we always started by acknowledging God as creator of heaven and earth. This was always the way you started the service. It was very, very little directed at self. But this new movement seemed to have put creation aside and therefore what we now call the environment aside. And you've made this interesting point that even that a focus on moral issues, on personal morality, and even even on the family, in fact, can become a form of focus on self, which is a problem in our culture at large. Yes, it can. In fact, you know, when we were, when we were raising our children, uh, we certainly focused on the family, but (laughs) we... But that focus brought us into the marsh on our canoes. It brought us to visit all sorts of uh, wonderful wild places. And uh, and uh, so really uh, that kind of focus brings you to uh, in, uh, envision the entire biosphere. And it's 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 great. It's great, vibrant life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so and your family's when, place in that. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And. And uh, so what uh, what I saw uh, in this coming was a a new form of Christianity devoid of reference to God as creator or even uh, uh, the other thing that was was really rather very distressing was that there was no recognition of Jesus Christ as having anything to do with the creation. So my own response to that was, uh, to take advantage of an opportunity that was given me in 1979, first to consult with and then to direct Osabel Institute of Environmental Studies, which was just being formed from an earlier youth camp. And uh, what I did with that board of trustees of this old youth camp was to uh, inspire them to create a center out of this institute that would serve evangelical Christian colleges uh, throughout the United States and beyond uh, with uh, courses and programs that would honor their creator, uh, that would uh, emphasize and educate in the areas of environmental stewardship uh, and do ecological education with a view toward its being biblically uh, supported and sound, so that this idea of coherence between the two books, right, that we spoke about book, earlier, uh, mm-hmm. that we spoke about the book earlier, of nature would, uh, and the book of the book of God's works yes, and the book of so God's that, word, mm-hmm. so that coherence would be reflected in their in their teaching and learning, and this has resulted in many people uh, coming up through colleges and universities 
going all the way through graduate schools, coming back to teach in these colleges. And uh, we've been establishing in a very long and difficult way uh, a base uh, that has a renewed grounding in the full uh, truth of the scriptures, which, uh, which really starts with Genesis 1, uh, you know, in the beginning, God uh, created the heavens and the earth. And, um, and that's starting to come t- to fruition now. In the year 2002, a colleague of mine, John Houghton, who, uh, who heads up the board of the John Ray Initiative, the Osable counterpart in England, right. uh, and I uh, got, to, uh, got together to give a forum on climate change. And that that turned out to be an uh, extremely significant turning point. Right. I well, mean, I, I was fascinated to see that you had helped put that together with John Houghton, with Sir John Houghton. Um, this was a meeting in Oxford, um, which mm-hmm. brought together the world's le- leading climate scientists from across the world with leading conservative political leaders and religious leaders. And That's and I right. interviewed um, Richard Sizek uh, mm-hmm. some months ago, a program that um, that really took a lot of our listeners by surprise. I mean, he and he referred to that 2002 gathering in Oxford, I believe, was that where? And yes, as, he did. As mm-hmm. uh, he said, I was converted to the science of climate That's change. That's right. That's right. And he's become a leading voice, um, rallying evangelical churches and Christians around this. So, and that's right. That was. Did you that know was, that that would that would be a result of? Well, that was our that was Sir John and my strategy. Actually, mm-hmm. it was in 1999 at Windsor Castle. I was asked. Uh, well, first of all, they in 1999 they decided uh, at a at the John Ray Initiative meeting to. Uh, study the concept of stewardship uh, the following year. So uh, 2000, I was the guest of the canon of St. George's Chapel at uh, Windsor Castle uh, and uh, presented a half day on stewardship. Uh, that w- there were three other speakers, and uh, as a result of that, uh, we, pre- we produced a book on the topic, but at the end of that uh, conference in the year 2000, Sir John and I uh, took uh, took the long walk, which is about three miles that comes out from the castle way hmm. out into the rural areas, and uh, talked about what we're going to do next in our lives. And uh, uh, we discussed genetically modified organisms, uh, other issues, and, and but we finally zeroed in on climate change. And decided that what we would uh, do is to jointly produce a forum uh, between Osable Institute and the John Ray Initiative uh, that would uh, uh, have as its major focus the transformation of uh, conservative and evangelical leaders uh, who had a Christian uh, perspective uh, into understanding the science of climate change. And the way we would do that is to bring the leading climate scientists together. Uh, he, would, uh, he, Sir John, would coordinate mainly in the science area. Now, he's a scientist, would, correct? John yes, he's a, he's a physicist, uh, and he was head of the U.K. Meteorological Office, hmm. uh, extremely prestigious position, uh, and he headed up 
uh, co-chaired working working group three of the uh, governmental intergovernmental panel on climate change, which does the scientific assessment. And uh, so he's responsible for putting out the three reports on the status of climate worldwide. Uh, He's also a Baptist lay minister Mm. and evangelical. So he he and I, uh, with my Asabal connections uh, and others that resulted from that, and with his connections to the climatologists of the world, uh, we thought that what we would do is create a setting in which evangelical leaders uh, would be become convicted of uh, of the science and then uh, hopefully move from there to actually take action and uh, that in 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 fact uh, has happened uh, came, came to came yes. to happen now um how how would you explain the resistance that was there uh, among evangelical Christians um, and leaders, uh, well educated people who weren't you know there is a there is a an idea out there which is to generalize that that evangelical Christianity is anti science that's certainly not the whole picture but you know how yeah. would you explain mm-hmm. is there part of the resistance to environmentalism as it has become more mainstream in our culture. Mm-hmm. Is there part of that resistance that you understand? And yeah. Yes, there is. Uh, it, uh, the, the, first, the first inkling I had of this was when I was in my teens, uh, attending with one of my Christian friends uh, a daily vacation Bible school. Uh, it was... Uh, a Bible school held by his church, which was much more fundamentalist. And it was there that I learned that we were supposed to be suspicious of science. Okay. You hadn't uh, learned that before. <laughs> I hadn't learned that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another time came uh, from when my daughter came home from uh, Christian school uh, one one day and said, Dad, are you a scientist? <laughs> and I said, yes. <laughs> she says, oh, my principal said that you are evil, mm. that scientists are evil. So I had a talk with the principal. Now, I think I understand the roots of this. They they go back to 1859 with Darwin's Origin of the Species. And uh, first of all, B.B. Um, B. Warfield, a great theologian at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, welcomed evolutionary theory as an evangelical, and he was also the person who uh, developed the idea of biblical inerrancy, one and the same person, (laughs) uh, which is, and he was quite a correspondent with Charles Darwin as well. Hmm. And, uh, but uh, but something went off track here. Uh, The thing that went off track is that uh, many evangelicals, particularly in America, saw the uh, work of Darwin as being uh, uh, threatening to uh, views on how God made the world. And, uh, and these, uh, these new uh, findings, of course, were by Darwin and were then studied by many others, and, and all these others were scientists. Uh, so I think the discernment here was not really good, uh, by the evangelical 
uh, community, particularly those who uh, were not in the sciences, uh, they uh, soon associated this teaching with scientists in general, and science got to be the sort of thing you didn't study. That's what I learned at this vacation Bible school, is that you should never pursue science because you might lose your faith. Right, right. Um, and uh, that's a very bad way to deal with it, especially for me, coming out of this two books theology tradition, it's like saying one of the two books uh, might might mislead you. And right. what we were taught is both books are of the same author. And, uh, Nature cannot, and the Bible. Yeah, they cannot be... Uh, they cannot be at odds with each other. Uh, whatever differences we see between the two books is our problem. It's not the problem of one or the other book. Um, and I wonder, I guess what I'm also trying to get at is... Um, what <clears throat> sorry has mm, i i think until quite recently the environmental movement as such and this is probably just as much a stereotype <laughs> as <laughs> as the idea that all evangelicals are anti science um it was considered to be something somewhat left wing right mm-hmm. i yeah. think i think secular i think that was an association mm-hmm. um mm, and and do you has it has it been has it seemed to you, and are you engaged in that it was important to also find a new vocabulary to bring this movement to make it accessible mm-hmm. and and to allow it to speak to more people out there in our culture? Yes, I think there is need for a new vocabulary. Um, there also is a is another irony here, and that is that many Christian people, including evangelicals, have been part and parcel of many of these organizations that we think of as being secular, like the Sierra Club, uh, the Nature Conservancy, uh, and uh, all these other environmental groups. You've also pointed out, I think, that the president of the World Wildlife Federation is an evangelical Christian. Yes, he is. That's Larry Mm -hmm. Schweiger, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he's a very very committed evangelical. Um, But the vocabulary uh, is is a real... uh, is a is a real uh, issue here. Um, what has really taken hold within the evangelical world and and beyond is the uh, concept of creation care mm-hmm. or caring for creation. Uh, that has diffused a lot of people's nervousness about using the word the environment. Now, I have no problem using the word environment, but one of the uh, things that uh, the coining of this word by uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, when he used it first in the form environing, which became environment, hmm. uh, what what came about from that was the first the, the was the first time that we could actually uh, separate ourselves from the other. Uh, before that, we had no ability to do that in Western uh, culture because it was the creation, and we were part always of part of it. So this was uh, the environment as something separate outside us human beings. Yes, and etymology. I mean, uh, linguistically, we had created through Chaucer uh, a way of separating ourselves, mm. and uh, so what's what's important about the 
revitalization of the word the creation and creation care and caring for creation is that it brings these two together again. And this is where my friend uh, E.O. Wilson uh, and I have full agreement, and that is we have to reinstate uh, this term, the creation, back into our vocabulary. E.O. Wilson has just written this new book, what is the name of the book? Um, the Creation. The Creation. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and yet he's very, very critical of religious people and the he role is. they have played in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's well, interesting. Have... It's an interesting time we're living in, isn't it? Yeah, it is. He yeah. and I have had quite a few discussions on this. Uh-huh. Um, we, uh, in fact, in January of 2006, uh, uh uh, I was to introduce him to the distinguished lecture uh, at uh, the University of Wisconsin, and uh, I noted uh, in my conversations with him that in a film he and I both appeared in, uh, Keeping the Earth, uh, a film by the Union of Concerned Scientists, that he had mentioned the word, the creation. And he said to me uh, in January, oh, yes, I like that word very much. And I said, well... <laughs> Uh, could you explain? And he says, well, that's a, that's a very rich and meaningful word, and we should reintroduce that. And I said, well, I agree with this. Uh, would you mind if in my introduction to you I'd conclude uh, by referencing it? And he said, fine. So when I introduced him, uh, I said, and he will—it was a long introduction. It was supposed to be a scholarly introduction. And so I, in the conclusion, I said, and now uh, Professor Wilson will uh, tell us how he's been working to save the whole creation. And uh, I could sense my colleague squirming when yes. I said that. And uh, then he got up in about the second sentence. He says, I'm with Dr. W- Dr. DeWitt here uh, for reinstating this word. It's a wonderful word. Mm. And uh, uh, we and I, he and I have talked about his faith— uh, and he really deals with this in in his own uh, book too, the creation. He was born and raised a Southern Baptist, yes. and he understands it well. Uh, but he um, he's an atheist now, isn't he? Or is well, that no, he says he says he's a deist. Okay. And, uh, oh, all right. It, it's uh, I mean he's very emphatic about being a deist. Deist, and then he says, but don't ask me too much more, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> because you might not like what I say. But mm-hmm. uh, he's he's. Uh, He's really working for what he calls consilience. You know, he's really working for reconciliation. Uh, he sees the world, and, and I do too, as very, I mean, I'm thinking of America now, as being very pol- polarized. Right, reconciliation and, between science and religion in particular. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and those should always be together. Mm-hmm. And that's where the two books comes back in. You have to... If you really believe that God is creator of the heaven and the earth, you have to be willing to look at it. At the, uh, at the earth, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it, and you, have to, you have to be willing to learn from it, mm-hmm. too. And it's just absolutely vital that we learn from the creation and that we learn from uh, the scriptures as well. And uh, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good starting point. And, you know, this subject is out there in our culture. Richard Dawkins has published a book. Um, another scientist, but very, very critical of religion. He is generally. Sure. And, but, you know, another thing that I'm intrigued by in your history is I see 
you talking about a joint appeal in 1992 in Washington, D.C., yes. uh, between mm-hmm. religious people and scientists. I, I was struck by a line um, uh, in that appeal, we are people of faith and of science who for centuries often have traveled different roads in a time mm-hmm. of environmental crisis. We find these roads converging. It's fascinating to think about environmental crisis as that, which might bring science and religion back together again that's in the right. 21st century. Yeah, that that uh, that's true. And, and that meeting was one of the very significant events in uh, environmental history in America. Hmm because it brought scientists and religious leaders together, uh, and it resulted in some very, very significant consequences that that began to pull things together. Hmm. And yet it was very much under the radar screen still in 1992. Yeah, we tried to make it go above the screen. But it didn't but, go. Uh, it uh-huh. didn't get very... And very I, I also... Um, I think you make an interesting and important observation as an evangelical about um, how quickly evangelical Christianity can move when it yes. when something when it has an you know as we say Richard Sizek the uh, vice president of governmental affairs of the National Association of Evangelicals says he was converted to the science of climate change. Yeah, and, and he, he says, much as I was converted to Christ, right. <laughs> which is quite a statement, uh, but but you're quite right. And that, and that conversion is an aspect of that faith. It's also very non-hierarchical in, yes. compared to other traditions. And you say that that also allows evangelical Christianity to be responsive. It does. Uh, there's there's a tremendous blessing to structure and institutions, uh, and that that blessing is a blessing of stability. So, in our mainline congregate uh, denominations, we we have that they don't get blown back and forth by different things that are changing. Uh, they are appointing committees and task forces and so on, and doctrinal statements change only very, very slowly, like over centuries, right. certainly uh, sometimes over decades. In the evangelical world, there's a fear of hierarchy, and uh, uh, most of these churches are only loosely organized. Um, some have denominations, uh, but there's a, there's a great distrust uh, in human authority, and the the teaching is the bible is is our source of 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 life uh, of work and of practice so uh if the reading of the scriptures uh shows that caring for creation is a vital part of the human task and we have been ne- been neglecting that then uh that calls for conversion and Evangelicals are are very uh, very used to the idea of taking about faces, which is really what conversion right. is about. And uh, this, interestingly, uh, I was able to observe in the early to mid nineteen seventies on world hunger issues, because oh. in the early nineteen seventies, I heard often people say, well, the poor you always have with you. And uh, the argument seemed to be then you don't have to feed the hungry. But as soon as the scriptural teachings 
particularly of Jesus, uh, of when you deal your bread to the hungry, you're dealing, you know, it's like serving uh, my needs. Uh, I've, I was in one congregation at one point, and they turned around in 30 minutes uh, <laughs> because that's what the Bible says. On and, hunger and uh, poverty. On hum- hunger and poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, one professor in this in this particular church, uh, wrote as congressman for the first time. He was already retired. And uh, when uh, he called me over to his house a a couple of weeks later, he said, I got this three-page letter, and it's just absolutely uh, rich with stuff, and it absolutely means nothing. Is this what happens with politicians? It was his first dealing (laughs) with politics. Uh, But Bread for the World was formed, and... And all sorts of things like that. Hunger relief organizations were formed. It was remarkable. So what I'm thinking is going to happen here is much like it's happening at uh, Boise Vineyard right now, uh, the Vineyard Church in in Idaho. Well, tell that story. That's about this environmentalism on the ground. Yeah, it really is on the ground. It would be a Pentecostal congregation, wouldn't it, a Vineyard Church? It is Pentecostal. Okay, so uh, what are they doing? uh, They're... they're, um, it's in Boise, uh, Bo- Idaho? Boise, Boise Vineyard um, uh, has uh, Pastor Tri Robinson, who uh, has a daughter who had been taking an environmental studies courses and uh, was on to her dad to say something about the environment. And uh, Tri Robinson is a, a conservative Republican rancher. <laughs> okay. uh, he rides a horse. Uh, he's a... Uh, you know, kind of a stereotypical uh, rancher type. And uh, what he did, uh, thanks to his daughter, was to discover that uh, he should do something about that. And it took him about six months of Bible study to find out, you know, how he would say this biblically. And then with uh, some fear uh, and a lot of prayer, he gave a sermon on uh, caring for creation, and remarkably, for the first time ever, the congregation stood up and gave him a standing ovation. Hmm. And uh, then this uh, past spring, he had a conference there, and the head of the Vineyard Association, uh, Bert Wagoner, uh, was invited. He also gave a sermon there, which was very supportive. Are they based in London or in... In no, the state, they're in the United States. No, they're they're in the U.S. Okay, and and I think this gave Tri Robinson even more license freedom, uh, and then uh, Bill Moyers in uh, his uh, TV special October 11 um, in 2006 uh, featured the Boise Vineyard, and now you should see their website. It's just so. It's so remarkable. And what are they? They're not just though. He's not just preaching about it, is he? I mean, aren't they? Oh, they're organizing uh, they, locally. They have, they have uh, regular programs that bring people high in the mountains to uh, restore trails, uh, the, to eliminate uh, uh, invasive species, uh, to uh, uh, recycle materials. In fact, that church has the only recycling center in the whole city of Boise. They are the recycling center. (laughs) They have a food pantry, for example, that not only is a food pantry, but it serves 23 other food pantries. Uh, The place is just absolutely vibrant and alive. 
And uh, of course, their membership is is just growing tremendously mm. because there have been all sorts of disenfranchised environmental types kind of waiting for the church to do something, and here it is. <laughs> it's happening. Yeah. Uh, so watch out. Mm. Uh, right. It's uh, for evangelicals who are interested in increasing membership, which many evangelical congregations are. Uh, this certainly would do it this because the there ticket. are so many. There are so many people waiting for this to happen. Mm. Hang on just a second. I'm taking a question from behind the glass. Okay. Um, I think we we're I know we started late, but I think we should try to finish in about ten minutes. So Sure. I have a lot of other questions, but okay, let's see. Um I just want to talk a little bit briefly about um You've worked all over the world, I know. I, I noticed that you'd worked in Cambodia in working with them on wetland stewardship, um, yeah. lower Mekong Delta, conservation leaders. Mm, I wonder, as you are out in the wider world, um, with the way you've uh, reconciled your Christian underpinnings with mm-hmm. with your observations as a scientist, do you also discover this happening in other traditions? Do you discover resources from other traditions working in the same way? Or are you mostly working with Christians? I, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm working mainly with Christians and with uh, Jewish people who, uh, and, and largely working in the United States. And the, and the reason is that in all these other countries I work, uh, the U.S. is seen as the beacon as the model as the leader hmm. and uh yet we are not seen um uh, in the area of environment at least in recent decades as being the leader we once were and so my main focus has been to uh restore and refocus uh american citizens on uh on polishing and and finishing the model that we began to set out so so beautifully in the 1970s in a bipartisan way. Hmm. Uh, All of this legislation we saw in the 1970s was bipartisan. The Endangered Species Act, for example, was was voted in by both houses with but one dissenting vote signed into law by President Nixon. and it was a it was a remarkable time that showed us uh showed the world rather that we were really stewards of creation and uh this uh this activity this action on our part was was uh, copied by many around the world and my aim is to get back to that mm-hmm. uh that inspires every faith uh you know american american responsiveness to caring for creation inspires every faith. And we can learn from other faiths, but uh, we're a rather arrogant society. We're, we're, not, we're not often uh, the society that puts ourselves uh, in the learning uh, mode in these, these other countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to have to learn how to do that too. Uh, religion basically is... As Wayne C. Booth at the University of Chicago says, religion is the passion to live rightly on earth and to spread right living. Hmm. Uh, and uh, Christianity 
is that Judaism is that, and many of the world's religions that right are living that. as real Buddhist echoes for me too. Yeah, that, that and phrase. to spread right living, you know, that's what evangelical really right. means. <laughs> right. is you, what I the way I define evangelical is an evangelical is someone who has such good news they cannot keep it to themselves, mm. and and right living is one of these things. If if you if you really have discovered right living, then you certainly want to spread it around so that other people will live rightly too. And we really do know a lot about how to live rightly. With the, and, with uh, the natural world as well. With I mean, the natural that, world, mm-hmm. yeah. We really do. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have now decades of experience uh, in soil stewardship, in climate stewardship, uh, in land stewardship, uh, and in America, we have perhaps the richest uh, treasure of of this knowledge. And now to go out into all the world and preach the good news is really all of our business. I want to ask you, I just watched the film The Great Warming, which yes. was made by a couple of uh, non-religious Canadian yes. filmmakers, but they did choose very intentionally to invite evangelical voices onto that, including Richard Sizek. And it has been showing, and it's very much geared perhaps more than Al Gore's movie, which has also uh, affected many people, but it's very much geared to to being seen, I think, as an educational tool in congregations, and mm-hmm. it is. I, I was, but I, I want to ask you about this phrase they they use at the beginning of it: the, the mystery of climate change. Now they they go on to <laughs> they go on to talk about how this can be documented, the, the change and the human f- impact on climate and the natural world, and also, mm-hmm. as you're saying, methods that we that we know we have to put in place to make some mm-hmm. kind of difference. And yet, it, it, this does linger over it. I mean, this is why, I don't know, somebody, people will say they have to be converted to the science of climate change. There, There is still a lot of mystery in mm-hmm. what we can really know and get a handle on. Mm-hmm. Mm, I would just, I'm just curious, because <laughs> of your approach to all this, how you respond to that phrase, the mystery of climate change. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would not have used that in the film, but I, I must say that as I view the world and as I look at things like climate and look at at Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, the oceans, uh, that scientific explanation uh, falls short of uh, telling the real beauty, the real wonder, the real mystery of these things. And I guess I would take that statement in that kind of positive light. Mm-hmm. However, you know, it also is probably not, uh, it's not real helpful sometimes for us to think of the mystery extending to uh, what we should do. Uh, Because uh, it's, you know, a Rembrandt painting might have mysterious aspects to it, but we still care for it. (sighs) And uh, that's, uh, that's very, very important is that this caring for whatever this climate system is, is absolutely foremost. Uh, And that's really the task, is to care for the Earth, including the climate system, the whole of the biosphere, and all the the creatures that 
dwell here with us. Yeah. And I think also there's a terrifying mystery in, I mean, just in the weather now, right? And, and well, much true. more so for people who live in more extreme climates than, than we do in the northern United States. Um, you know, one, I, I have this suspicion that, that in my children's lifetime, perhaps, or that, 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 uh, human beings will really feel themselves to be powerless against the natural world in a way that some of us in the early 21st or in the late 20th century didn't. Mm, You, you say that your students often ask you, why do you do this work with such joy? And, you know, and I do, although you are right in the middle of this climate change, Mm -hmm. you're right in the middle of, of knowledge, the front lines of knowledge about the ecological crisis um, and even these films, which are very helpful, are also frightening. I, I worry mm-hmm. that that the knowledge we're getting also can paralyze us. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't experience you to be paralyzed in any way. <laughs> I mean, is it? Do you not no, talk true. about the fear, or do you just? You know, how do no. you, how do you end up having this approach, this sense sensibility? Uh, my the the way I approach this is the way I've heard others do it too. Uh, ours is to be faithful, not necessarily successful. Um, and the the beautiful thing about proceeding with with some sort of faith tradition that's that's deep is that you know that you can't do the whole thing yourself. But the thing that you do know is that if you're faithful and pursuing integrity of the earth, integrity of society, that it may become contagious. Mm. And uh, I think it really is contagious. I know that from my own town of Dunn. When you move to integrity and you do it with a great deal of visibility, others soon join. We really seek that. And I'm hoping now that we'll be doing that for the entire biosphere for the whole creation. And on balance, knowing everything you know about how what we call climate change seems to be accelerating, mm, mm-hmm. do you, can you feel hopeful about, say, if, if humanity starts now, or just some of us mm-hmm. start now? I mean, I think there are a lot of predictions out there that... Mm. Predictions that which are always acknowledged to be incomplete, but and mm-hmm. hypothetical, but that that we cannot reverse the damage we've done at this point. So yeah, we can we can slow it up, um, but I think uh, one of the things I would do if I were in our um, Washington administration is I'd uh, summon a great deal of wise thinkers from the Netherlands uh, to come over or we would visit them there and we would sit at their feet and learn, uh, learn to learn. That's a model for you, the Netherlands? I think the Netherlands at this point is a model because uh, they have not only uh, dealt with uh, changing sea sea levels, uh, changing climates and so forth, but they've also successfully uh, addressed them with their behavior, with their technology. Um, we have an immense amount of knowledge in the United States, 
the Dutch have the will <laughs> to actually do something about it. And, of course, many of our cities are taking the lead on this, but we now have to take the lead nationally. And uh, it would be great to just have our whole administration sit in a class taught by the Dutch <laughs> on how you deal with these great crises because that nation uh, stands to lose the entire country right. uh, if, if it doesn't act. Well, that's mobilizing, uh, all, too. All, all we're going to do is new, lose New York and South Florida and uh, Louisiana. <laughs> Uh, that's all we lose, but they'll lose the whole country. <laughs> so that should be frightening enough. Losing I those think three so. places. I think so. I we have to finish. I I wonder if there's anything I haven't. Do we need to really need to finish? Okay. All right. We need to finish. I may ask you some other questions by email. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. And and I'm this sorry we had the delay. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks, Krista. Yep. <laughs> 